Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John J.V. Venable, and it is a pleasure to welcome you to this afternoon's event, Protecting Vital Defense Supply Chains, Perspectives from Congress and Industry. Uh, I'm a senior research fellow at uh, the Heritage Foundation, and it is our privilege to uh, host you this afternoon. The defense supply chains are a complex network of firms and industrial facilities which design, build, and maintain defense items. It's hard to fully quantify just how critical they are to the U.S. national security, and they are at risk. Some defense programs depend on Chinese suppliers for key items, and others uh, rely on suppliers that are located in foreign countries who do not share America's interests. And still, there are uh, others that um, rely on American small suppliers, small companies that are struggling to stay in business right now with COVID. There's bipartisan consensus that the risks our defense supply chains uh, are facing must be confronted. But unfortunately, there is no consensus on just how to go about doing that. To help us understand the priorities and the issues involved, we have three great experts that are with us today. And I now invite them to join us up on screen uh, first, we have Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, who is a member of the Sea Power and Projection Forces and Readiness Committees of the House Armed Services Committee, or HASC. He is also a co-chair of HASC's new Bipartisan Supply Chain Task Force. Next, we have Mr. Rick Giannini, President and CEO of Milwaukee Valve Company and Chairman of the Aircraft Carrier Industrial Base Coalition, or ACIBC. And finally, we have our own Maya Clark, a researcher in the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense and author of a recent paper entitled Understanding and Protecting Vital U.S. Defense Supply Chains. Uh, if I could give you a quick orientation on how we're going to go about doing business this afternoon. First, I'll ask our panelists um, a variety of questions. And, and as I'm doing this, I hope you will take the time to type into the chat window in the lower right-hand side of your uh, GoToWebinar window on the right side of your screen. Go ahead and type your questions and I'll do my best to uh, assimilate them. And then in about 20 to 30 minutes, uh, we'll pelt them with your questions. And with that, uh, let's get started. Uh, first, uh, my first question is for Representative Gallagher. Uh, sir, as Congressman, you have a constant barrage of important issues on your plate with that. Why are defense supply chains an area of concern for you? And, and could you give us an idea of how Congress is moving to secure the supply chains for critical defense items and the status of those efforts? Well, thank you for the question. Thanks for, for having me. Uh, it's great to be on this, this panel. Uh, you're right, being a member of Congress uh, at times can uh, feel a, lit, a little bit like being the the dog from up, where you're constantly, uh, you know, being distracted by squirrels. So you got to exercise a little bit of discipline to stay focused. But given what we've been through in the last year, I can't think of a more important issue. I mean, just remember, a year ago around this time, the Chinese Communist Party threatened to withhold life-saving medical supplies and plunge America into what they called the mighty sea of coronavirus. And this wasn't an idle concern. The Chinese government actively restricted exports of PPE such as masks as coronavirus went global, 
So if we were asleep about the, the consequences of being dependent on our greatest adversary for a critical supply chain, the pandemic certainly provided a, a shock to the system. And I don't think it takes much imagination to see how the CCP can and will utilize similar dependencies across our economy and our defense industrial base to undermine our security. And on a daily basis, we're already seeing how the fragility of critical supply chains in areas like semiconductors is undermining the economic competitiveness of key sectors of the American economy. And even more than the day-to-day -day competition, what keeps me up at night um, is how our atrophied defense industrial base would perform in the event of a protracted conflict. So during the Trump administration, Congress took some overdue steps that were bipartisan largely to play defense when it comes to our national security innovation base. We strengthened CFIUS to better protect against Chinese investment. We updated our export controls. We used the entities list to restrict the flow of critical technology from threats like Huawei. Um, and there's always more that can be done on, on the defensive side. But I think naturally the center of gravity has moved this Congress to the offensive side of the equation where we have a host of bills that are making their way through Congress that are all trying to address this national security supply chain uh, vulnerability in one way or another, from the CHIPS Act funding to ORAN technology to the USA Telecommunications Act. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit that I'm hopeful will become law soon. And so uh, I think we, we're off to a good start, but I think we need to. Uh, there's a lot more thinking that needs to be done holistically about critical supply chain. On the Armed Services Committee, along with my co-chair, Alyssa Slotkin, uh, our task force is working in a bipartisan manner to look at the defense-specific side of the supply chain. The Biden administration is conducting its own supply chain review, and pretty much every think tank in town is working on a supply chain task force. So clearly, we have reached peak supply chain. And I don't think anyone has the silver bullet solution, but ideally, we'll all contribute a small piece of the puzzle. And though I'm generally uh, pretty optimistic about the fact that we're having this discussion, It looks like we're having a little technical issues on uh, the representatives in. Let's see if it gels and we'll give it another uh, 30 seconds or so. Can you hear me? Yeah, you went offline just for a second, sir. Um, if you would repeat that about the last 30 seconds. Well, that, I had something very brilliant that I said. I, I don't remember it clearly. <laughs> but, and my point is that, I, that I've been shocked at, at a time when uh, Congress is very divided on a lot of issues. I've been shocked at how bipartisan this discussion is. So it could go off the rails, but I think we have an opportunity to build off that foundation. Really refreshing to hear one that this truly is bipartisan and two that we're on offense as opposed to just being a responsive mode. So thank you for that. Rick, a quick question for you, sir. Your company is part of the supply chain for the Ford class uh, aircraft carriers and you work with a bevy of other companies in the supply chain through the aircraft carrier industrial base coalition. Yeah, can you tell us a little about the supplier base? How many companies uh, does it include and where are they located? You're on mute, sir. Oh, am I muted? Sorry. You're, uh, you are now loud and clear. All right. Thank you, JB. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, in total, uh, the industrial supply base is made up of 2,000 companies across 46 states. We provide $8.8 .8 billion worth of products and services uh, that go on every carrier, and we employ 92,000 American workers. 
We supply everything that goes in and on that carrier. Uh, and many uh, suppliers, uh, myself included, um, we supply products that go on other vessels. Uh, at Milwaukee Valve, we supply parts uh, that go on uh, submarines, destroyers, amphibious warships, and littoral combat ships, so everything. And like many other suppliers uh, in the industrial base, we also sell into other markets. At Milwaukee Valve, about 30% of our revenue comes from Navy Marine uh, products, and it's growing. And uh, the balance comes from our commercial and industrial markets. The uh, Aircraft Carrier Industrial Base Coalition gets together every year for a couple of days in DC for what we call action days. On day one, we hear from speakers from our uh, shipyard uh, personnel and from Navy personnel. And then the next day we get together uh, on the Hill uh, and listen to uh, congressional speakers come in and talk to us about uh, their support for the program. And then we do the rest of the day, what we were there for initially and originally is to uh, go out and talk to our individual members one-on-one uh, -on -one about things that are affecting our business and how we impact the uh, supply chain and then to ask uh, for our congressional funding asks, which we do every year. Uh, this year is no different. This year's asks had three components, uh, talking about new construction for CVN 80 and 81, and the uh, RCOH, which is a refueling and complex overhaul funding. And then lastly, we had a request for some R&D funding. The uh, industrial supply base really did extremely well in our COVID response. I, I believe, uh, like all businesses, we face some uncertainty and instability and some disruption. But unlike many other companies across the country, we were fortunate that we're part of what is the defense industrial base and deemed essential and critical. And I can tell you from Milwaukee Valve's perspective, everyone in our company was proud to learn that we were able to stay at work and continue to provide the products and services. And overall, I think the industry did a good job. Issues okay. facing us. Yep. Yes, sir. I was just going to go to say that the uh, large or small, some of the uh, businesses, uh, the greatest issue that we face as an industrial base is our threat to stable and predictable funding. Any business wow. can have difficulty without a clear market outlook. But in the defense industry, uh, our products are only used on those vessels. So if we don't have a clear picture, it's really tough. Uh, we, we have uh, a lot of help recently from uh, Congress uh, with the two ship buy that went into place uh, and the RCOH funding, both of them are critical to our long-term health. Uh, I would say overall, it's really a great time to be in the shipbuilding industry. Uh, our coalition and others wanna keep this momentum going. In terms of trends, 61% of the industrial supply base said the Navy shipbuilding contracts saved jobs in 2020. 92% said that the multi-ship purchases like the block buys and the two-ship buy are important to our health and future. And 79% are optimistic about the future. And I can tell you Milwaukee Valve is uh, a plus on all three of those. So thank you. Oh, fa fantastic. Um, all, all great answers and uh, really impressive to hear how well both the, the large and the small um, sides of this industrial base are doing. Is there a particular challenge to the small uh, firms that that is more uh, burdensome than to the large firms in that area? Funding is absolutely applies to all of them, but but talk to me about the smaller size. 
So I could talk to you from my perspective, since for the most of the years that we've been at Milwaukee Valve, we have been a small business and we've transitioned uh, over time to be a large business. Uh, and it really, you know, there are some bigger challenges. You're a little more vulnerable when you're smaller to not having the funding. You don't have the same resources that a larger company might have. But overall, um, it really does come down to the stable and predictable funding. That's, that's really what it all boils down to. Well, fantastic. So let me turn to Maya. Uh, Maya, your paper is just a, it's a, it's a long ball uh, in, in a very big field, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, we've heard about the issues of supply chains from Representative Gallagher, and, and Rick talked about uh, how the, uh, the, the industrial base is, is doing that. But a few of the policy responses that we're talking about um, proposing here uh, are, have to be Pre, have to be led by other efforts. In your paper, you talk about some actions that need uh, need to be done in advance. Could you help us with those and understand what those might be? Absolutely. Thanks, JV. So basically in my paper and in my research, I really argue that the preconditions for supply chain policymaking is in total, you need a comprehensive view of defense supply chains. And what that entails is firstly, greater supply chain visibility, and also a system for assessing and rating the strength of defense supply chains. So there have been efforts already to make policy to strengthen defense supply chains. And frankly, sometimes the proposed solutions to supply chain issues can be another problem. Um, and sometimes the solution is a bigger problem than the problem. Um, and my uh, key example for this are some of the Buy American uh, proposed uh, rules that came up in the last uh, NDAA cycle and eventually were not enacted. But uh, these rules would have required all defense items to be 100% uh, made of 100% American components uh, and would have, in doing so, cut out all of our allies from the, uh, you know, from the defense market. And this would have really destabilized the defense industrial base, would have drastically increased the cost of defense items. Um, and so all in all, the precondition for good policymaking is good information. And so that good information is going to include, uh, firstly, supply chain visibility. Right now, there is no one actor in the acquisition system who has perfect supply chain visibility, who knows every actor, every, uh, you know, every supplier, every level of production for defense programs. And there are different issues that make it hard to achieve supply chain visibility. One is that private companies don't want to share this information. Um, it's proprietary information. A lot of times uh, companies maintain a competitive advantage by keeping that information confidential. Another um, issue is that the Department of Defense doesn't have a way to sort and maintain that information right now. It's a huge amount of information that they would have to maintain and it's information that changes on a daily basis. 
there's hope that evolving technology, things like blockchain technology, um, solutions that are implemented now in the private sector could allow for this kind of data management that would lead to supply chain visibility. The second tool that you would need to kind of improve your knowledge of supply chains and thus improve your policy making is assessment. And DOD actually has a tool now called the Fragility and Criticality Methodology uh, that they use in a sector by sector manner to uh, determine the health of, for example, the uh, aircraft sector or the munition sector um, that could be applied in a more specific way to judge on the one hand how fragile is an industry or how fragile is the supply chain for a specific item. And then on the other, how critical is that item? And when you're able to make these judgments, able to make these assessments, you then are able to make the determination, this requires some kind of intervention. This, uh, there is a national security imperative to, uh, you know, reshore this industry, for example, or there is a national security imperative to, um, you know, do some other kind of government intervention to ensure defense access to this industry. Um, but that way you are making these decisions based on true national security need and not just a general sense of you know, supply chains are in trouble and we need to save them. Uh, you want to make sure that you are truly responding to uh, security needs and not just a general feeling of vulnerability or weakness. And so that's what I argue in my paper and hope to be able to discuss more with my fellow panelists today. So turning it back to you, thank you. Well, it's a big challenge. Uh, the F-35, several other major um, acquisition trains are all facing the same thing in the associated dilemma. want to take a quick break here, ladies and gentlemen, to remind you that you can type your uh, questions into the window in that uh, GoToWebinar side on the right side of your screen, and we'll get to those here in just a second. I've got a couple of follow-ups that I want to do right now. Um, talk about the tensions within the supply chain. On, on the one hand, the Pentagon, seeks to learn as much as they can about the supply chains and the details within that. On the other, defense companies are reluctant to divulge much, worrying about the proprietary information they'd be giving away by doing that, maybe not just to the government, but to their competitors. As a commercial entity, Rick, uh, how do you view this challenge? Well, JV, uh, there's always a concern when you're dealing with proprietary information uh, with with your competitors having a chance to see what you do. Um, but that's in any industry. And in the defense industry, actually, from Milwaukee Valve's perspective, uh, everything we do is a Navy uh, design. So we are building products that are in Navy designs already. So the proprietary issue, while it does face some of our uh, uh, colleagues in the industrial supply base. I don't think it's as pervasive on, the, on a majority of the equipment. Um, and like any other industry, the best overall package of 
uh, quality products and services have the best chance of winning. So what I would say is that the capacity of our industrial base and the quality of the products are a primary concern of the Navy. Competition's everywhere. It drives better uh, methods and solutions and improves the quality and reduces cost. And for our perspective, we've always been in competitive situations, whether it's uh, in the uh, commercial world or in the Navy world. So the other benefit in the defense side is that when we do better and compete, the taxpayer gets the benefit as well. Absolutely. Uh, Representative Gallagher, any thoughts? Unmute myself there. You know, I think, well, one, I hope we do come back to a critical point that Maya raised earlier about sort of buy America, because I do think one of the emerging hypotheses of at least the supply chain task force is that rather than a pure buy America approach, which in some cases means autarky, which is not a good solution for the United States, is to think about this as a buy allied or buy free world framework. And that's part of going on offense that I referred to before. So I'll just plant the flag there and maybe we can come back to it at some point. But uh, on, on the, the specific question, I think the traditional answer is that it is too hard to keep track as you move down tiers in the supply chain. But I think that answer is unacceptable. We need to start thinking about how we can ensure companies can shine a spotlight on all aspects of their supply chains. We have technology that lets us map the internet why can't we map our supply chains? It's just a matter of asking the right questions, tracing defense supply chains until we reach commercial sources. This is the kind of requirement we should consider inserting into defense contracts, or at least starting with a single program, a single legacy program in DOD, and asking them to fully map it out and learning something from that process before we apply an onerous and impossible requirement uh, to all of DOD. But just remember the mass shortage one year ago, uh, it, it, and it, it taught us that we don't know uh, what what this might, you know, what this might end up being. It's something we totally take for granted, but due to one crisis or another, we're gonna find ourselves in a vulnerable position. The sooner we can identify where these vulnerabilities lie, whether it's dependence on hostile sourcing, single sources or scarcity of raw materials, the sooner we can realize what we're dealing with and not have to catch up after the crisis erupts. So I think it's possible. I think we can do better. Uh, but right now, we're just trying to nudge DOD in the direction of doing better. Oh, great thoughts. Maya, anything to share? Absolutely. Uh, Representative Gallagher, it's interesting that you uh, suggest, you know, taking a legacy program and doing kind of a pilot uh, supply chain mapping, because that actually was a recommendation in my paper. So uh, I'm all about that. And Maybe I stole it from you. I, I don't even know. That's all I do is yeah, I steal ideas. I, great ideas, man. It's great stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think absolutely there's, you know, there's just so much new technology that allows us to do amazing things with data and allows us to process amazing amounts of data that to me, the size and complexity of DOD supply chains at this point and the uh, and even really the confidentiality of proprietary data should not be obstacles because there is technology that allows us to kind of overcome those barriers. Uh, so I really have a lot of hope that going forward uh, there will be new ways that we can map our supply chains that we can know these vulnerabilities that we can see these problems before they really become problems um 
you know, all using these new technologies. And uh, I'm excited to see what the future holds as far as supply chain visibility goes. All right, you three, it's really easy to talk about these issues in peacetime, but if we went to war tomorrow with a peer competitor, would the shipbuilding industry base be uh, able to meet that challenge? Could we ramp up production in a wartime setting? And what are your concerns regarding the inherent challenges? And uh, start with you, Maya. I am not concerned about the country's ability to go to war tomorrow. I think on the one hand, you know, this is the United States of America. We are a very determined nation and uh, I think we can do very great things when we're resolved to do so. But the infrastructure that we have to work with today is pretty abysmal. And our nation's shipyards are abysmal. Our uh, commercial, or not commercial, but our private shipbuilding is better than our Navy shipyards, but is still, uh, you know, far behind uh, that in other countries. And, um, you know, we, I, it would be hard to say what would happen, but I, I think we would have our work cut out for us. It would be a challenge. And you yeah. know, I'd be very interested to hear what, you know, Rick as someone in the industry would have to say, or uh, Congressman Gallagher, but uh, from my perspective, it would be a challenge. Yeah, the global nature of sourcing, even from um, our allies, becomes an issue. Uh, the F-35 parts are made in countries where the labor laws are actually very constrictive on how, how quickly you can produce things. And then the delays, inherent delays, might not match with our own uh, desire to, to go faster. Representative Gallagher, any thoughts? Yeah, my short answer is no. I mean, I think you know, we could we could fight tonight, as the saying goes, on the Korean Peninsula, but I don't think we could sustain the fight tomorrow or, or for a week or let alone for a month. I think you add on to that just the combined effect, at least from a naval perspective, of Fat Leonard and ship collisions over the last few years. I mean, we've sort of done more damage to our own Navy than the PLA Navy could have hoped to do. Uh, and then when you look at warnings from leaders like Admiral Davidson, that the Chinese could move against Taiwan within the next six years, it's clear that the CCP envisions a fait accompli strategy where they want to win quick, stabilize the new status quo. quo. Uh, so the flip side of that coin is that in any China scenario, we can lose quick, uh, but I don't think we can win uh, quick. I, I, we'd, have to, we'd have to play for time while we consolidate our forces, all while expending munitions at a very high rate, and then unfortunately taking very severe attrition and our current defense investor base is simply not postured for this kind of surge production. And I, and I know that's an unpopular message to deliver, but that's what I've come to believe in studying this for the last few years. You know, uh, I think today is the 76th anniversary of VE Day. Check me on that. I could be wrong. But if you think about what it took to win World War II, uh, you know, in, in March 1940, the American defense industry produced about 100 major combat and transport aircraft for the Army Air Corps. Within 48 months, shortly before D-Day, 
that number reached a wartime peak of about 5,200 aircraft per month. So across society, American industry rallied to support the war effort. Take the auto industry in 1941, we made over 3 million cars in the United States. But as the factories, Ford's factory, its famed Willow Run, where they rolled a new B-24 off the line once an hour, transitioned to defense production, fewer than 150 new cars were made in America through the end of the Cold War. So I guess that's a long way of me saying, I think we're gonna have trouble ramping up in the in the way we did with Freedom's Forge uh, you know, back in back in the, the 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 World War II period, and I think that's one of the biggest lessons of the pandemic, right? That that we learned that uh, that supply chain is is a little more complicated than it was uh, in the mid 20th century, and that's something we're trying to fix right now. Well, I really appreciate you bringing up all of those points, particularly that last great war we were in, and that's the last time we've actually fought a pure competitor. We went from a handful of ships, a handful of aircraft carriers to well over a hundred uh, by the end of the war, but all of those were kind of mapped out before we were hit on Pearl Harbor. So if we in fact do go and fight a pure competitor and it is a major war as many envision it being, Rick, we're all gonna be relying on you. How will you be able to sally up? We appreciate it, first of all, uh, that's what we're here for and uh, it's, uh, it's clear that if there's a conflict and it started tomorrow, um, you know, many things have to change in order to ramp up. Uh, the industrial supply base is capable of ramping up. I can tell you that while it's shrunk over the years, the, the folks that are left are far more capable and dedicated to this industry than, than those that were living off of uh, it when it was very strong and then when it got weaker, the people that had the the survival instinct to stay with it are the ones that are left. But you can't go into a war and and not change something. And that change, as uh, Representative Geller was talking about, was the resources that were committed to building these things has to start there. It has to start with the Congress and the president creating a plan with this conflict that requires advanced planning and funding. And if we have the funding and you'll get more people involved, let's face it, people get out of industries because there isn't work there for them to do it. If there's work, you're gonna get other companies that will jump in and uh, you know that's where I see it happening. And, and that's just my take from a, from a manufacturer, one of you know, a thousand or two that are helping supply products to make these uh, products work. A couple of key linchpins in there though, Rick, are uh, things, one of our questions from uh, the audience is about rare earth minerals and how we are limited and constrained in many of the kits that we build here in the United States by the supply of those. And much of that comes from China. Uh, I'll, I'll throw this out to the panel. How do we go about uh, protecting and or ensuring a seamless supply of those rare earth materials that we'll need when the next war comes about? Well, can I quick, uh, something Rick said, I think is really important, and I'm curious if he agrees. It's not just the overall level of funding and resource that you're right, Rick, it's on Congress to start that process. It's it's the consistency in the defense budget, right? It's, it's, it's ending this dumb process of, you know, continuing resolution after continuing resolution or last second budgeting or, you know, ping-ponging back and forth and never fulfilling the fit up just because our budget process is so broken. Sometimes I think industry would be willing to accept a, a lower top line if it was consistent 
and the rate of increase was consistent over the FIDIP. But instead, we do this in a totally chaotic fashion. So I think I think you make a really good point, and um, I uh, I certainly think if if the uh, if the peer to peer competition comes down to the manufacturing prowess in Milwaukee, the United States will win hands down. So I have I have confidence in American industry. I have less confidence in Congress's ability to budget uh, uh, responsibly. Um, and now I've I've forgotten. Oh, rare earths. Well, rare earths aren't rare. If you sort of look around the world, there's plenty of deposits. It's just a question of creatively working with our allies and partners to leverage their expertise and our expertise. I'm encouraged by what the Pentagon is doing right now. Some pilot programs with Australia. I was in Western Australia two years ago with my Democratic colleague, Joe Courtney, and all we heard about was rare earths, rare earths. And so I think there's a world in which we could have you know, an effective triple bank shot with Australia, Japan, and the US all leveraging our natural resources and expertise in order to solve the rare earth issue. But again, it's gonna take some domestic investment and it's going to take some common sense regulation because this can be a messy environmental process. And sometimes it's it's environmental regulations that get in the way of, of shoring up our rare earth supply. Great. Uh, any thoughts, Mike? Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, you know, on the one hand, we don't need to 100 uh, percent, you know, have an American supply of rare earths for all of our you know, defense and other needs. But when you look and see that China produces 80% of the earth, you know, the rare earth supply for the world, that should be a concern. So I think uh, we need to look at diversifying that. We need to look at uh, acquiring those from our allies, especially, you know, such strong allies as Japan and Australia. And uh, we do need to acknowledge that it's a messy process uh, as far as environmental regulations go. Uh, you know, just because it was happening in China doesn't mean that it somehow wasn't happening. Uh, you know, that to me seems like kind of this blind spot of, oh, you know, it's this icky environmental process. So if they do it in China, I somehow don't have to feel sorry about it. You know, you have to kind of own up to the uh, environmental costs of using rare earths, but uh, I think that the way forward will involve American investment and, uh, you know, investment in our allied uh, capacity to provide those. Fantastic, Rick. You want to bat clean up on this? I must say, uh, I'm uh, I'm the, the 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 lesser of the three here to answer this question uh, from a supply base. You know, we obviously need the raw materials, and I can't I disagree with anything that's been said. They need to have a stable uh, supply of them, and working with our allies is the best way. Well, fantastic. So I've got a couple of uh, really fascinating uh, pylons from the audience, um, and this one's a, a little bit of, uh, of an additive to what we've said so far. Our biggest challenges as small business and uh, small defense contractors are unstable business uh, because of the NDAA, the inability to export due to draconian application of ITAR rules, um, and, uh, and then unfunded um, items that are mandates from contractors like drawing CMMC and the likes. Um, and the inability of DOD users to uh, project life cycle um, usage so we, uh, the small contractors, can make decisions 
on how to best support those efforts. How do these, how are these issues being addressed? And I don't know if you've got any thoughts, Representative Gallagher, on that, but it, it would uh, be great to hear from you on that. I have a couple. I, I wonder if it's, um, maybe this is my bias as an authorizer, um, whether it's NDAA that's causing the, uh, the chaos or whether it's the appropriations process. Uh, not to throw the appropriators under the bus, but uh, um, we tend to consistently pass NDAA on the same cycle every year. Now it does come sometimes with new regulations. You reference CM CMMC, and I think it gets to this issue where it's easier for the big primes to comply with uh, a new regulatory requirement than it is for the small and medium-sized uh, contractor. And part of the reason we don't see a more diversified defense industrial base with new primes emerging is because of that uh, regulatory uh, problem, in addition to the way in which DOD awards money. One uh, point on ITAR regulation. Uh, this is actually something that keeps coming up in our supply chain task force work. It's that we established this thing called the National Technological Industrial Base. We formally incorporated Australia into it, the UK's part of it, Canada. Uh, but really it hasn't produced the allied cooperation that it was intended to produce. And part of it is to allow our allies a little bit of freedom from a draconian application of ITAR, but that isn't happening right now. And so this is actually something we're evaluating, not just from a pure US perspective, but also in terms of how do we more closely collaborate uh, technologically with Five Eyes partners, and ITAR is a big part of that. So. Not a good answer to your question, but more just sort of a riff on some of the issues you brought up. Great, you've been thinking about it though, Sir Rick, or um, Amaya, anything to add? All right, well, let's uh, go on. This is a, a really good one about semiconductors. As you know, Taiwan is a major producer and supplier of our semiconductors and its proximity uh, to China is, uh, well, it's, it's an issue. Um, can you all speak to the role of semiconductors in the defense supply chain and whether there are concerns about the production supply and access to semiconductors? Rick, would you start with that? I will try. My, you know, the, the world I live in uh, doesn't use many semiconductors, but I certainly recognize that in the defense industry as well as in uh, uh, other industries, it's a big problem. And, uh, I, I don't think I have a, a direct answer for you, so I'm gonna have to pass. Maya, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, happy to. I mean, semiconductors are used in all kinds of defense applications, as well as, I mean, just all kinds of applications. If a toaster has a semiconductor in it, everything has a semiconductor in it, and they can be you know, wildly simple to incredibly complex. Um, and Taiwan is a huge producer of them, and its proximity to China and very complicated relationship with China is um, a big concern. And so I think, uh, you know, that is really fueling a lot of the uh, semiconductor uh, conversation that's happening right now. You know, on the one hand, you have the semiconductor shortage as a result of COVID and uh, on the other, you have just the fact that so many semiconductors come from, uh, you know, near China and that 
isn't necessarily an acceptable risk anymore. Uh, and so I'm sure Congressman Gallagher can speak more to what Congress is thinking about that at this point, but that certainly I think is going to lead to some change. There's economic reasons that the semiconductor industry is in East Asia, which is mainly that East Asian governments subsidize the semiconductor industry there in a way that the US government isn't really about to subsidize the semiconductor industry here. So it just financially makes sense for companies to open their big semiconductor fabrication facilities there. Um, so in the future, for the United States to end up being a maker of semiconductors like East Asia, it may require some kind of subsidy and that would not necessarily be acceptable in the United States or, you know, that's not uh, really in line with our free market culture. Um, so it remains to be seen what will happen with that, but would love to turn it over to Congressman Gallagher, see what he has to say. Well, I think this really gets to two very important and difficult issues, right? The first is what is your, what is your limiting principle for supply chain security, right? It's, it's, it's easy to, to quickly go from, okay, we need to invest and the government needs to invest in some sort of mild form of industrial policy in semiconductors and chips because they're so critical. But then all of a sudden you find yourself saying, okay, you know, we must make masks domestically, which I'm not convinced of, or we must, uh, you know, subsidize the electric vehicle uh, market. Uh, so there, it's, it's a, re a real challenge to, to sort of draw the line. But I think there is bipartisan support behind the idea that at least when it comes to chips, we have to figure out a way to onshore that production and build more fabs uh, in the United States. I'd like for them to be built in Northeast Wisconsin, but then again, you get to an issue of uh, environmental policy. This is a messy business as well. It's not just a matter of spending five to $10 billion to have another chip fab in the United States. You have to work out all the environmental concerns and it take, that takes some time, particularly given the web of regulations involved uh, in that. So um, I, I think that's, that's uh, that's one issue, and you're absolutely right to suggest that part of the reason that Taiwan is is so valuable is not just as a legacy issue for Xi Jinping, a historical issue for the CCP, but uh, as a means of allowing him to hold the rest of the world uh, hostage uh, if he if he effectuated unification with the mainland and had control of TSMC, uh, and that's that's unacceptable uh, from our perspective. So I do think that the Congress is going to act by funding the Chips Act. We'll see if that's enough. Uh, over the the short term, um, but uh, I think doing nothing is not an option. Well, you you touched on the live wire there, Congressman, when you talked about environmental regulations and impact. Um, one of our uh, our audience members has piled on with that and said, during World War II, there were no stringent manufacturing regulations as there are now. Um, wouldn't that inhibit ramping up production if we needed to do so? Rick, any thoughts on that? There is no question that the number of regulations that are in place today greatly outnumber those that when I started working in the industry. Um, and yes, it is an inhibiting factor because of the time it takes to get through the approval process. 
But I would then throw that back and say those are also legislative type issues that can be overcome if that was what was most important to the nation. Representative Gallagher, any uh, any closing thoughts on that? Well, you see this in the infrastructure space, right? I mean, I always remember uh, it was a few State of the Unions ago, Trump had this riff on infrastructure and he talked about not only investing in infrastructure, but collapsing that average 10 years it takes to get an infrastructure project approved down to one or two years. There's been some good work on this by the, I think it's called the Common Sense Project, um, where how do you, and, and the, the Trump administration to their credit, I think, uh, had a framework for simplifying the environmental review. I, you know, I almost think it should be the default that projects get approved uh, after a year, um, as opposed to 10 years being the standard. So I think there's a lot more that we can do at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level for regulatory reform, simplification. And part of the reason why American infrastructure is the most expensive in the developed world is because of all this overlapping regulation that, that doesn't really make sense and, and um, provides dubious value from an environmental perspective. Maya, any closing thoughts? We're at the end of our time. So do you want to back clean up on that? Well, just to chime in and say that, yeah, you know, environmental regulation serves a purpose. We, uh, you know, we want to protect the environment, but the degree of environmental regulation we have in a lot of cases is ridiculous. And, uh, you know, in the case of the defense industrial base, in the case of, uh, you know, building items for the national defense, it inhibits our national security. And so that, uh, really needs to be something that's reevaluated. Well, fantastic. Unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. Uh, what a great session. I'd like to thank our uh, guests, Representative Gallagher, Mr. Giannini, and my colleague, Maya Clark, for their great insights. I also want to thank our audience for joining us for this incredible conversation and for all your questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to them all but we got that couple, so thank you for that. Whether you work on the Hill or a think tank or just have questions, please contact us using the information listed on the screen right now. We'd love to continue the conversation with you in any way you would like. So immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey about what we hope you'll complete the survey and, and that you'll bring ideas that you care about to our public programming. To see the events we have coming up, check out the Heritage uh, at our events page at heritage.org slash events. Again, thank you for uh, being with us today and have a great weekend. Bye-bye.